Hey, are you ready to grow your business? You have checked out the number one resource for business leaders, entrepreneurs, startup founders, and managers. And we're going to teach you how to grow and scale your business with real actionable steps. There's no fluff in this podcast. It's just good advice. Check out this episode. If you're a first-time listener, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoy this episode, leave us a five-star review. Today's episode is with Mark Metry, and he's here to give you the answer to overcoming social anxiety with his new book, Screw Being Shy. It's out on Amazon. You can check it out now. I'll put a link in the episode description. He's also the host of the Humans 2.0 podcast. It's a top 100 podcast in the entire world. Stay tuned. Here comes your good advice. You've checked out another episode of the Good Advice Podcast. Today's guest is somebody who I've been wanting to sit down for quite some time. I got Mark Metry with me today. He's the author of the soon-released book, Screw Being Shy, coming out on March 14th. He's also the host of his own podcast. It's a top global 100 podcast called the Humans 2.0 Podcast. He's had incredible guests like Seth Godin, co-founder of uh, Netflix, Mark Randolph. He's an incredible person, has an incredible story himself, and I'm excited to share that with you today. Mark, thank you for being here. Blake, that's so kind of you, man. Thank you for giving me the space to um, talk about the things that are the most important to talk about. So, thank you. Well, Mark, if you don't mind, man, like there's obviously, you know, you're, you're obviously this incredible entrepreneur. You've done, you know, you've, you've really built so much in the last few years. I, I, I do want to talk about that, but I got to be honest, what's really interesting for me, and it's part of the reason why I wanted you on the podcast, is really your backstory. And it's, I know it's, it's really the, the premise for why you've published this book, Screw Being Shy. You've talked pretty openly about dealing with anxiety, with introversion. And, and I want to talk about this because especially like in the entrepreneurial world, we have this perception that to be a successful business person, you kind of have to be this bombastic, kind of like Gary V-esque yeah. type of personality. And, and you've kind of got against, you've gone against the grain a little bit with that. Talk to me a little bit about your story. Yeah, definitely, man. It's a great setup. And so, you know, for me, man, the reason why, um, you know, a 22-year-old is writing a book about a, you know, mental health topic like social anxiety is because I literally have to. Because when I was growing up, um, I lacked a lot of awareness. And, you know, quite frankly, um, I think a lot of systems in society and just the way that we perceive things and believe things um, just needs a lot of updating. And especially with things that you can't see, usually like mental health. And so, you know, people look at me as some kind of like, you know, pretty like anomaly out of the things that I'm doing at a young age. I um, mean, for sure, I'm definitely interesting uh, to say the least. But the reason why I'm writing this book is because I literally have to, because there are so many other people who, you know, really experience pretty severe social anxiety that are unaware that it's a mental health issue when there are actually ways to, you know, sort of sustainably mm -hmm. and holistically heal and get out of that. And when I kind of stumbled on it and like through the podcast, Humans 2.0, and as I began to talk to a lot of smarter people, 
I sort of began to paint like this massive picture, like this massive map of what is really, in my opinion, kind of happening of, you know, if you look at it, you know, 800,000 people commit suicide every single year. And you look at the potential correlating factors with suicide, two big ones are uh, substance abuse and social isolation. Hmm. And then you look at the most common anxiety disorder, which is social anxiety. And you look at social anxiety is heavily correlated with substance use disorder and social isolation. And I remember in my life where, you know, like you said, I, at one point when my, when my parents were immigrants and they came to this country, I didn't have any money. And then I sort of began to chase that level of financial success. And I did have money. And you know what happened in turn was me not becoming uh, so successful, and I kind of went down a darker spiral in my life in terms of my mental health. And there was a point where I was suicidal, and I, you know, really spent like a decade of my life experiencing social anxiety from like ages um, beginning of like nine, ten, all the way until I was eighteen, nineteen. And so when I kind of got out of it and I sort of saw like all these different factors, all these um, moving buckets, I was sort of like, wait, you know, I I was lucky enough to not become a statistic. And, you know, I'm here to sort of spread this message. And I'm here to spread this message, I think, from a very unique standpoint, because, um, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not... um, you know, someone who's had necessarily extensive, um, uh, you know, work done in like in the mental health space. But I think that I've sort of sat from a a really interesting perspective, seeing a lot of credible people that who I've talked to and who have become friends with kind of talk to me about these things combined with my own life experience that I think I can just relate to a lot of kids, adults, just the everyday person that, you know, can experience these issues. And I, you know, I remember for me, you know, my social anxiety really began to develop when, um, and, you know, before I should say that, um, you know, I just want to say that, you know, being introverted or being quiet is not the same as being shy and having social anxiety. Mm. You know, there's literally nothing wrong if you want to, um, you know, just being introverted. I mean, introvert is defined as somebody who predominantly spends most of their time spending on the internal world and elements like their thoughts, emotions, feelings. Um, Nothing in there does it say um, you're nervous or your body and mind tremble when you have to speak to someone. And, you know, it's okay to be shy every once in a while. Um, And what a lot of people don't understand, though, is if you're shy all the time in every single situation, and it gets to a point where um, your mind just sort of talks you out of everything you want to talk to, and you you physically begin to feel fear in your body, like your your armpits, your armpits, or your or your uh, your hand starts to sweat. Um, you, you know, you your forehead uh, gets hot, um, your throat clenches up, your mind just races, and you overthink, and then you have no idea what you want to say. That is social anxiety, where it keeps happening again and again and again and again, and in turn you begin to create a lifestyle to cope with that, with the boundaries that social anxiety creates. Mm. And so for me, I was eight, nine, 10. Um, and I began to develop this because 
uh, you know, the few factors. One, uh, at this time, I at this time in my life, my family and I we moved out of like a bigger city and we moved into kind of like a smaller town. And um, you know, a lot of great people in that town, but just like any place, there's always great people and not so great people. And you know, I remember also at that time, uh, there was no diversity in this town, and so everyone looked the same except for me. And maybe a couple other families at that time. Everybody was uh, white Caucasian, and also you, you know, to remember, uh, you know, also at this time, America and really the world was kind of getting out of like this post nine eleven um, oh, yeah. sort of culture and this fear where you know the Middle Eastern brands really started mm. to take a decline, <laughs> and people were really afraid of Middle Eastern wow. people. Yeah. And so I was kind of going into this, and you know, people, you know, I experienced a lot of racism. People. I mean, would call me a ton of different things and I got my fair share of bullying. And also at that same time, I began to develop other physical health issues, things like ADD, asthma, issues with my stomach, appendix, sleep, skin, bladder, a wide variety of uh, physical health issues, which you know had me basically going to doctor's offices in and out and being prescribed medit- medication to take every day which really just zapped my energy. And so a combination of these factors of having no energy and just feeling like crap and then being in a bad environment really just like put me in like this mindset or having social anxiety uh, for almost a decade. And, you know, it took me a while to break out of that where I kind of fell down my rock bottom was suicidal. And then eventually, you know, I began to take small steps out of that. Um, so that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> when was the first moment because I'm sure like even at the young age of like eight and nine, it's, mm. you're, you're experiencing the symptoms, but you probably don't have like, I, I would guess the self-awareness of what's Mm-mm. really happening. Like, do you remember the first time when either social anxiety was being described and you were like, oh man, that's, I think that's me. Yeah. What, at, at what point did you yeah. realize, hang on, this isn't, this isn't how I was, how I'm supposed to be. Yeah. What was that? Yeah, That's a fantastic question, man. So yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, I think I think I'm young enough to, you know, kind of have like gone through like the school system where they begin to talk about mental health, and I remember, um, like being in health class, <clears throat> and them talking about like anxiety and depression, and I mean, I don't I don't remember whether it was the way that it was being described to me, or just my perception, or just my brain, but I was like man, it must suck to have depression. And, anxiety. <laughs> and like, I just like, for me, like when I think of depression, it's like, it's like the most like severe, like someone is <clears throat> like trapped in a dark room in their bed all day. And for sure, it can definitely look like that, but it doesn't have to be that extreme. And I thought anxiety, I mean, I don't even think I heard what anxiety was. Um, maybe I did hear of it, but I just never really thought about it, to be honest with you. And so like you said, I was, I didn't even know that I had social anxiety. I wasn't even conscious of it. And so like all throughout this time, you know, um, I just thought that there was something wrong with me. I thought that I was just some kind of a moral failure. I thought that I was just an outcast that I was just like, I was just born like this and I was just going to live the rest of my life like this. And so a lot of these things began to change. And I became conscious of the fact that I had social anxiety. Excuse me. The first time I went to a college party (laughs) and I remember I got drunk and I remember when I got drunk, 
I experienced the ability of what it was like to walk up to anybody mm. and talk to the first time I've ever felt that in my entire life. And, you know, you can be so ingrained in something. You can be so engulfed in something that your brain just takes that thing, even if it's really bad, and just blends it into the background so that you don't even think about it anymore. Um, and so when I was able to do that, I remember the next day when I wasn't drunk, just thinking like, wait, what the hell just kind of, <laughs> what just happened? And I remember I sort of began to understand it. I began to Google it and I began to actually understand that social anxiety yeah. was a legitimate thing. And then once I could label it, it was sort of a problem that I could then go out and tackle. And the, you know, the other thing that I would want to say is that, um, you know, my speaking of labels. Um, so I think first and foremost, you know, you have to in- accept who you are and you have to forgive yourself and you have to love yourself. But I, you know, honestly, I think a lot of us get caught up in living within labels, especially in terms of, um, you know, at least what I went through. And so, you know, for me, when I realized I had social anxiety, it was a great liberator. It was Mm. a great realization. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm not just like this, you know, morally flawed person. Mm -hmm. This is actually like a product of um, a, a, uh, a glitchy nervous system interacting with today's modern world mm-hmm. uh, and also with other biochemical factors. However, I could have stopped and I could have said, oh, wait, um, I have social anxiety. Okay, I guess this is just the way that life is. I guess I just shouldn't talk to people. And so I think that there's sort of um, a couple of different ways to look at labels from this perspective. And I think for sure they can give you great liberation, but also at the same time, it can be something that you can you know cling on to as a as an escape route. And so that's something that I'm always mindful of, and what I, uh, part of it I talk about in the book. But yeah, it was beautiful. What, what was it that, I mean, you talked about like hitting rock bottom and being suicidal and, you know, I, I, th- I would assume that people who don't know your story today, who just take a first glance at you would be really surprised to hear your story. W- what was the moment or, or was there something that really pushed you to actually get a grip on this thing and to not let it define you? And because not everybody is able I guess, to do that. Right. A lot of people, they live, just like you said, they live in the comfort of that label, but there was something about you that really, I mean, you, you kicked it into gear and you started really, it's kind of become your story now. What, what was it that got you to do that? Yeah, man. So, um, I think, I think it was this. So, um, you know, when I was suicidal and, um, you know, essentially I had a, um, you know, I had a I had a glimpse of my intuition. Um, I remember on one of those nights, I um, kind of felt a silence I never felt before, and I felt an emotion that I never felt before—a feeling from my intuition. And um, when I kind of felt that, it gave me hope that there was something more. And so, I mean, I'm glad that I wasn't extremely suicidal, um, and I'm glad that was able to get me out of it. Mm-hmm. But you know, I remember that. Um, when I, when that, like after that night, when I kind of had that, uh, interaction with my intuition, I remember, um, like looking, going home that night and looking at myself in the mirror. And, you know, at this time I was, like I said, I had mental health problems, but I also began to, um, you know, use food 
as a coping mechanism. I began to binge eat and I was, um, you know, in a, in a short time in that dark time, I gained something like 60, 70 pounds and I was over 220 pounds. Mm. And so when I came back that night and I looked at myself in the mirror, um, I realized that I was overweight. And up to that point, again, I wasn't even conscious of the mm. fact yeah. that I was overweight because I was almost like locked into this trance, locked into um, just like sort of a series of behaviors that my brain was telling me to do. And so um, when that happened, I began to tackle my physical health. I was like, how do I lose weight? And so that began the uh, journey for me to um, uh, you know, fix what I was eating, fix my diet, um, begin to fix like how I was exercising, how I was sleeping. Uh, which eventually gave me a lot of energy. And when you have more energy, you gain access to more things that you can do. And when you mm. gain more access to more things that you can do, you gain more access to who you could become. And so um, I kind of went through that. And um, you know, I remember then, that is when I actually began to tackle my social anxiety. And so Rock bottom for me was like towards the end of 2015, beginning of 2016. And I began to tackle my health and really take a lot of things seriously and tackle my social anxiety in like late 2016. Mm. And so I think the biggest thing is like, looking back at that now, I was giving my, my hardware, which is my body and like the physical organs that run life. I was giving my hardware um, an adjustment to its biochemistry in terms of just doing the things that all humans are supposed to do, sleep, move, eat, mm -hmm. drink. And so, you know, a lot of us sort of corrupt those. A lot of us sort of um, are rather sort of disassociated with how human beings have evolved with nature for thousands of years of the fact that, you know, we all go to office buildings and we sit down for hours and hours when, you know, a natural sort of primitive human was evolved to be moving. Right. Um, you know, don't even get me started on food and the amount of junk food that um, <laughs> is really terrible for your mental health, forget your yeah. physical health. And so what I was beginning to do like unknowingly at that time, which is like the first sort of um, like actionable um, like chapter in my book it's all about biochemistry. It's all about establishing the hardware first because like you could literally have the best software, the best software. Um, and that's like your mindset, your thoughts, uh, your beliefs even. But if you're trying to install the best software on like the most outdated hardware, like you're trying to install iOS 13 on an iPhone 3GS, it's just not going to work. I mean, no matter how hard you try to like, you know, brute force jam it in there. It's just not really going to have long lasting results. And so, you know, I think honestly for social anxiety and really any mental health issue, I think a big part of it is starting with the biochemistry to establish a hardware, uh, to establish a foundational level for your hardware first, that is then much easier to run that software on, mm -hmm. which is like tackling your fears and doing all those things. And so I think I was able to get out of social anxiety and begin to tackle my fears and to sort of like begin to, th to go through a, a changing of behavior, a system that I talk about in my book, because I was giving my body, at least at a biological level, what it needed yeah. to not 
freak the hell out and to not stress <laughs> out. And like we know with people that have social anxiety, they've done studies that show they have bigger amygdalas, which is the part of your brain that um, is responsible for fear. And it's not the fact yeah. that fear is, is bad. It's just a lot of us have bad relationships with fear and in turn it controls us when it should sort of be, um, you know, sort of a balance. But, um, but yeah, I think that it's just sort of like neurochemically, I was more, it was easier for me to make a change in my behavior because I set myself up on that foundation as almost sort of a one way. But I yeah. think if I just try to like sit in my room and just try to figure out how do I get out of social anxiety and just sort of run the software way only just like only reading books, only just watching information, I think I would honestly still be in that position right now. Now, does it, does it, did it have to come from you for it to work? Because like, like I think about people who they, it's like a relative, it's a spouse, it's a family friend, it's a best friend who is like in the throes of maybe not even social anxiety, maybe even just depression in it. They want to encourage them to, you know, get out of the room and, and sort of change their own perspective. But at the same time, you know, and, and I've been that person where it's like, okay, I need to, I need to support this person. I don't need to like bark orders or like, you know, pull the curtains back or whatever cliche there is. Did it have to come from you for you to really, you know, get your hands around this? Um, you know, that's a good question, man. And, um, you know, honestly, what I would say is that um, previously in my life, so many people, I think with, with definitely great intentions and honestly, maybe even the right ways, definitely tried to help me before. But um, I mean, I don't know for what, you know, the way that my life has worked out, whether you believe in destiny or fate or whatever, um, that didn't really work. And it, I, it had to come from me. Mm. And I think that people can definitely be sparks, can definitely be potential triggers. But, you know, kind of like what you were hinting towards of like, I... <sighs> You know, I think it's very hard to give somebody advice in that position, you know, because the, the way that the mind works is it thinks, um, especially when someone has depression or anxiety, it's usually sort of closed off and trying to sort of isolate itself um, in its own little confinement. And when you give someone advice, it doesn't work. It just balances off. And so I think the way to begin to do it is maybe if you can... Um, you know, whether it's you or even like a therapist, begin to guide someone to help themselves to open their mind, like to begin to get them to get curious, to begin to get to ask them questions for their mind to open up and go down its own paths. I think that is the, the, the best way. And, um, you know, honestly, I think, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of things that you can do to, um, like get help, uh, for sure. 100%, whether that's from a, a medical standpoint or a health standpoint or just being around the right people, just changing the environment for sure. But I also think a major part of this has to do with you. I think yeah. it has to do with um, a lot of this because I think, you know, a big part of this is, is this man. Like I remember thinking throughout my entire life, having sort of an unconscious belief that someone was going to come save me. Someone was going to come just like the same way that we've seen in Disney movies, this prince come down and saves this princess. Um, or maybe if you're talking about Frozen, it's the other way around. <laughs> but, um, but that is essentially like, that is it. Like I'm waiting to be saved. I'm waiting for someone to 
um, come get me, basically. And I mean, the matter of the fact is, as you know, Seth Godin and I talked about this. It's like, I mean, you're going to be waiting for a really long time. And, you know, the matter of the fact is that um, if you have that belief, if you have this belief that just, you know, people are supposed to fix you, um, you know, different, like your parents are supposed to save your life, your government is supposed to, um, you know, be the ultimate protector for you. I mean, you're just setting yourself for um, not only disappointment, but you're also setting yourself up for giving away your power. Mm. And so for real, for a hundred percent, I'm not saying don't get help or don't look at anything else, but, um, for sure, I think a lot of it has to, has to come for you. And I mean, for me, like, you know, I can, you know, one trigger that I think really changed the way I, I, I thought was, um, watching this video from Steve Jobs. And so it doesn't even have to be uh, a physical person. You know, I was just talking to somebody today on my podcast, actually, who was literally a, a suicidal soldier who is trying to, who's drinking a bottle of vodka a day, who's trying to kill himself. And he watched that movie Black Hawk Down. And that gave him the enough, enough emotion to see a glimpse of a potential future of courage and bravery that he could go down. Wow. And so I think that that's the way that I sort of look at it. Um, so yeah, I think, did I answer your question? Yeah, no, man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting because what you're talking about it's hard to navigate this from the outside because you don't want to like press on someone, hey, you need to be personally right. accountable. But at the same time, I'm noticing, you know, you're talking about something that it's, it's almost like a level of aggressiveness towards your circumstances, like shaping the life you want. And it's, the way I think of it, like out of like mental health and in terms of just like the American work culture is how many people talk about how miserable they are in their jobs. And then you ask them what they're going to do about it. And they're like, oh, well, I guess I'll keep working there. You know, and it's like, there's not a lot of action and really you're talking about really getting after it and taking, taking, um, I hate saying taking initiative cause it sounds so cliche, but, but like, it's like understanding who holds the ownership of your life, I guess. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And you know, I actually, like there's this part of my book where I talk about, um, you know, and, and, and like with that thinking, it's like, um, the way that I felt because I had those beliefs, because I thought like that was I felt like I was just like this weak fish that was just like flopping around the ocean at the whim of the waves and at the whim of other bigger fish. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for sure, um, I think that's, be- you know, and as a result of that, I didn't do anything for, um, for 10 years about it. But I also think that, you know, a big part of this is like people talking about procrastination. A lot. Um, and I think people have a very flawed misunderstanding of it. I think people look at procrastination of just like, oh, you just don't want to do that thing because of whatever, because you just don't feel like it or because you're lazy. And when you actually drill down, you realize that procrastination is, a, is your body's coping mechanism to respond to stress. Mm. And so um, when you look at it from that way, I mean, like I said, like, like on the biochemical note, like there are a lot of things that we can do to begin to help somebody just physically to make that easier for them to make those difficult changes. And then I think on the other side, it's like, until you, honestly, this is the way that I view it, man. Until it's like, it's like when you're signing up for a website or you're signing up for a social media account, it's like, they give you the terms of service. They give you the agreement that you have to read to. And it says, Hey, these are the rules, okay? One, two, three, four, five. This is just the way that life is. 
Um, sometimes it's fair. Sometimes it's not. But at the end of the day, it's your life. And so you accept that, you agree with that, and then you can play the game. And the mm. game gives you the ability to have a controller. Because what I realized was this, until you can take responsibility, until you can take ownership of your life, you can never change it because you don't think it's yours. And so you look at the word responsible, responsibility, you break down responsible into responsible. You are able to respond into your life rather than just react like that flopping fish that feels like it is at the whim of all the waves and the bigger fish. And I mean, sometimes it is. And so that's the thing about life. And you have to sort of accept your responsibility. And then in and of itself, that's where all your power lies. And so I wish somebody told me to take responsibility for my problems and also all the great things about me. You know, I think that, um, you know, as we move into the world of uh, people being offended and people, you know, all things being um, politically incorrect, I think that because of that, um, it has sort of, I, I don't know about you, but I, I can speak for people in my generation. It has given us this feeling that um, it's, not, it's not your responsibility. It's not your uh, problem. It's not your fault that these things are happening. And I think, you know, first and foremost, fault and responsibility are completely different. Mm. You know, it's not your fault that, and you know, a lot of terrible things have happened to a lot of people. You know, it's not your fault that your parents, um, you know, broke up, but it is your responsibility to who you are right now because of that fact that that happened and it still might be affecting you. And so, when you look at it from that lens, you really do understand that um, you are 100% responsible for your life. It is your fault. Um, and I, you know, I'm, talking about, um, I'm talking about this you know, relatively aggressively when it comes to mental health for sure. But it's like, you know, if you're a college student, it is your fault that you don't have money. I mean, you could. <laughs> and, and for sure, I'm talking about like, hey, we have the opportunities now to go to the library, to go on the internet learn, figure out how to do things, figure out solutions to your problem. I mean, this is like the, the human story. And so I think that responsibility is the absolute key. And until you have that, you're just a fish flopping in the ocean. But here's the thing, taking responsibility is super hard. It's super hard. You have to stop the, you know, a lot of the sort of shallow pleasure-based activities that you're doing and move towards, um, a lot of your duties, your responsibilities, things that you have to do. And so it's much easier to, um, to just sort of try to escape and to not take responsibility and to come up with, um, you know, every excuse in the book. And so, well, um, and, and you know, social media, I don't know if, I don't know how much social media helps in this regard, because especially like in the <laughs> entrepreneurship space, I see a lot of guys who were in their, in their early twenties, late teens who were talking about, like I literally just saw a guy with a big following the other day who said, he said, you can run a phenomenal business and wake up whenever you want. Now, is that true? Probably. You, could, you probably could run a business and wake up at any point. But what he was trying to communicate was, hey, if you want to stay up all night, if you want to play video games, if you want to sleep till two in the mm. afternoon, you can do that. And also, and, and there's almost like this disconnect where it's like, man, I don't, I don't know. There, there has to be a level of diligence here. I don't know how well social media is gearing the next generation for that level of responsibility, especially 
you know, talking about depression, uh, substance abuse. You know, mm. I, I think what I read, the, the statistic I most recently read is that this generation of teenagers, it's like the first time in a decade that the suicide rate has gone up. Yeah. Something to that effect. Yeah. I, I haven't read any studies on this. I don't know. But I'm also kind of like, man, I'm not, I'm not, it's sad, but I'm not really surprised because of how social media is today. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that, um, you know, I think that social media abuse is just a, is just a symptom of an underlying problem. And what I'm talking about is this. So, you know, our society has fundamentally um, done well in terms of um, providing basic human needs, in terms of um, providing water, food, uh, shelter. Uh, you know, if you live basically in the Western world for the most part, and that's because our society has been gearing up all towards that because we have been in that survival lack um, for, for thousands of years. And so whether that was through the agricultural revolution and trying to change and control nature, the industrial revolution, all of these things have been leading us to that. And so when you look at it, our systems in society have not taught us to do much other than that, than to take care of our survival needs, right? Yeah, you look yeah. at Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. You know, you look into other things like relationships, self-esteem, your emotions, schools, organizations. They are not geared to really handle that. Right. Um, and so basically, you have a ton of kids that are growing up in a world lost without any kind of leadership. And so when that happens and people are not connected to meaning, they go to wherever um, is sort of comforting and safe. And so for some people, for sure, that's the internet. You know, Look at video games, look at pornography, look at social media. Like you said, it's so easy to escape. And also at the same time, you know, we have never had more wealth. We have never had more money, more options, more choices, more opportunities ever in our lives. And with too much opportunity, too much freedom, literally comes anxiety. You have an overwhelm of the amount of choices and paths that you could possibly go down. And so I think it's because of these, you know, and then you can also like, hey, you could buy whatever you want. You don't have to leave your house today. You could just order food by delivery. You could buy, you know, whatever kind of drugs, alcohol, like a thousand things. And so I don't really think it's necessarily social media. I think that social media, the abuse of it can just be a symptom of mm -hmm. people trying to heal in their lives. And I think kids, teenagers are the most evident version of that. You know, I think in societies, kids, teenagers can actually be sort of a great indicator of how that society is going. Because a lot of times kids and teenagers just embody whatever's going around on mm -hmm. them. And so I think that is a major, major factor. And I also think that, again, our biochemistry is so off. So for example, uh, just in terms of like nature, uh, what we put in our bodies, it's so disconnected and nobody talks about it in healthcare. So for example, they recently did a study where they took teenagers, kids, and they took one of them whose uh, diet was whatever, the, the American standard diet. And they took one other group of teenagers that removed their junk food and had them eat a natural healthy diet. They saw a 100% decrease in suicide. Wow. And so, uh, excuse me, suicidal ideation. And so 
when you think about it from that lens of just purely biochemical, um, there's a lot of things and there's a lot of different sort of um, like modern conveniences, the way that technology, wealth, and prosperity has brought us to a level in which we live in a totally different world than what the world looked like 200, 300, 1,000 years ago, that our neurobiology hasn't caught up with that. And so we're seeing a ton of men- mental health issues alongside a major problem of people feeling lost because it's never been a more confusing time to be a human being. So I think that's a major part of it. And then, um, you know, for sure, like social media, because social media is not a drug you have to go buy from a drug dealer. You can access it from your phone. And the same thing works with addiction to video games, pornography, all that stuff. It's like, it's, it's becoming so sort of accessible that it's so much easier to become addicted to an abuse. I mean, you know, food is, is the world's biggest anxiety drug that's out there. I mean, you look at the different studies, um, they've done studies that take the brains of people who consume um, junk food, which is essentially uh, corporations creating these food-like substances in factories that look good and taste good, that work alongside psychologists, uh, really smart marketers, uh, biologists, scientists, and they create these foods that they know the way that our tongue interacts and has evolved to process different tasting foods. And so they'll create an artificial trifecta of just different substances that really were not made to be together. And on top of that, creating artificial chemicals, artificial preservatives that when we put in our body, it doesn't know what to do with, which can have a wide ranging um, side effects to your body's dysfunction from anxiety to diabetes to, I mean, it really runs the gambit. And so I think when you look at it from that perspective and you look at, you know, what the study also did was they looked at the brains of people who consumed those drugs with people who consumed real drugs, who consumed like cocaine and hard drugs. And they found that their brains in terms of gray matter were almost the same. And so when you look at it from that lens, I think our society um, has a lot to sort of look in the mirror and be like, wait, you know, what are we sort of telling people to do? What are we doing? Um, how are we telling people to best live their lives when, um, you know, we have a lot of structures in society uh, that are just not working because, I mean, you don't, I mean, you're, people are incentivized to just make sort of the most amount of money in the short term and not think about long-term consequences. And so I think a lot of um, companies, organizations, industries um, have really been working at the disservice of humanity to make uh, a short buck. And then when in reality is like when that CEO's um, mom or relative gets, um, you know, some horrible thing like Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, then I think they're going to think twice about what they're doing and have a change of heart. And I, you know, I don't think it's as complicated or black and white, but, you know, I essentially think it's these two major issues that are causing um, us to really become dysfunctional and then look for an escape, whether that's a kid or an adult or whoever, through, you know, ways that our society has told us is completely harmless. And so I think that is the real sort of trick that is messing up a lot of kids from someone who, literally just got out of this now. And for someone who, you know, speaks at schools, high schools, colleges about this stuff, and I see kids that experience this. So I think it's a culmination of like, like this cauldron 
that's just bubbling. And I, and I also think by that same virtue, there's also a lot of potential to heal and get better. And, you know, one thing that I always think about, like, just kind of like on the tail end of this conversation is like all the, all the great things that I'm doing now, I did those because I was able to really come to terms with my mental health, really just sort of understand the way that I want my life to be. Um, and then go after it. But I couldn't have used my potential if I, I never actually went after it. And so I think that, um, you know, we have a lot to, um, to, to overgo, but at the end of the day, you know, it's going to bring us so much happiness and, um, and just, you know, legitimate human um, fulfillment, not just productivity that's mm. going to arise from sort of the ashes of, you know, what I think people are going <laughs> to refer to as like, the age of um, technological prosperous confusion. So I think that's <laughs> yeah. a big part of the equation. Well, you're talking, I mean, you're, you're really giving a great ex- explanation of the human condition. And I, I see why you have felt so motivated to get this book out. And I was actually looking at some of your old podcast episodes and I saw you even put oh, out a, uh, <laughs> a, not that, not that old of a podcast, but back in November, you did a uh, podcast on, and I guess it was, it was either the manuscript or just the idea you were putting together on mm. being shy. So you've obviously been turning this over in your head for a while. What are you hoping that the average reader gets from your book? Yeah, for sure, man. And, um, you know, I, I have a lot of books I know I'm going to write in me. And I just really needed to write this book now. Like I was going to release this later, but I was like, no, this literally needs to go out like right now because this is a serious problem in the world. And I mean, if I could give this book to someone at the right time, you know, I think um, it could definitely help, you know, help people help themselves and their lives. So honestly, like, like the same way that I, um, you know, would want to, you know, go back to the grave and thank Steve Jobs for showing me the message that he did when he was dead after through technology or, um, or, you know, when I was listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast, when I was suicidal and he talked about the time where he was also in college and suicidal. And I realized that, you know, I was in a position where that guy is, where that guy was, I'm in there right now, but yet this guy's doing amazing things with his potential that's what I hope to do. I hope to be an igniter. I hope mm. to be an unlocker. That to me is at the end of the day, that's what real success is. Like I don't, to be honest with you, you know, you like personally in my life, I've reached a level where I have, um, I've, I've definitely made it personally, professionally. You know, I'm always going to have problems for sure. Those are never going to go away. Um, but I think I am successful enough. And I think the real way that I can become more successful is by helping other people become successful. And the matter of the fact is, is like social anxiety is not like my mission per se, but um, it's just a massive block that keeps people locked. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be an unlocker. I want to be an igniter. I want to give this book to somebody that reaches out to me, that listens to my podcast and asks me how I did this or when I'm speaking. And I can just give this to them because like I said, quite frankly, I have read so many books and none of them, especially in the whole social anxiety, how to build your confidence sector. I feel like none of them kind of touch on a lot of the points and methodologies that I talk about in the book. And I mean, you know, for me, like the worst case scenario is I release this book and people read this book like a, like a novel. 
like I talk about, it. it's like, if you don't put this book down and do something, I will consider this project a failure. And yeah. you know, yeah. at the end of every chapter, I have exercises that people can do um, at the end of every chapter to actually act on, um, on what it is that the book is telling them and guiding them through. And it's also backed up by a ton of science. Uh, you know, I've had um, organizational psychologists and New York Times bestselling authors and a wide range of neuroscientists sign off and endorse my book as it being a real legitimate guide. And so, you know, I'm really hoping to um, really get into this. And also like for the whole like entrepreneurship community, like I think I'm a big part of that too, in terms of like, like you said, towards the beginning of like, there's a lot of people who think they have to be like Gary Vee or Grant Cardone to like have a personal brand. And I mean, the matter of the fact is, is like you can, you can speak up. Uh, you don't have to be an extrovert. Um, you can be a little bit shy uh, and break out of that and start your own personal brand. And actually in my book, that's like the second to last chapter. I talk about entrepreneurship. I talk about how to, not necessarily how to start a personal brand, but I talk about how to sort of psychologically think about it from the perspective of that because I've had such a um, sort of integral role in doing that. So, um, so yeah, man, so that's why people should check out the book and um, definitely get a copy. If you have like kids or anyone that, you know, faces this issue and, you know, honestly, like going back to what you said about how do you help someone? I mean, I don't know if it would be an insult if you gave someone a copy of my book, who's shy <laughs> that says screw being shy. So, I mean, maybe send them the link or something and see if it's interesting, but I definitely think um, if you can put people in experiences, sometimes that's a book, sometimes that's watching the right movie, the right film, the right music, depending on who they are, I think that could totally change their lives. So, you know, I'm also, I also wrote this book because like I want this book to be in every school in America and eventually the world. I want this book to be at all um, like leadership conferences. Mm. Uh, I want this book to um, be in the hands of like, you know, all CEOs, so they know how to deal with, with, um, with people on their team who might suffer from this. Mm. And so that's really why I'm writing the book, man. I love your vision, man. Now, it, it, where's the, is it going to be on Amazon? It's going to be pretty much everywhere. I mean, where, where can people pick up the book? Yeah, people can check it out on Amazon, um, the paperback, digital version, audio book, um, all that stuff. Um, but I'll probably say like, if you want a central place, just go to my website, M-A-R-K-M-E-T-R-Y.com. And there you'll see links um, eventually to the book, podcast, uh, social media, if you want to contact me, all that good stuff. Great. Mark, thank you for being on the podcast today, dude. You killed it. Loved it, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it, dude. You, you're a great host. <laughs> Thanks, man. And for our listeners, I'm going to put the link to the book in the episode description, also markmetry.com. Definitely check out the book, order yourself a copy, order a copy for a friend, and also check out the Humans 2.0 podcast. Hey, if you are a first-time listener, what the heck are you waiting on? Click that subscribe button. Make sure you're following the content of this podcast. Continue to bring you some great guests. And hey, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review. We really appreciate it. Have a great week. We'll catch you later. See ya.